Welcome to Change the Narrative. I'm your host, J.D. Fuller. I'm Susie Younger. An African-American licensed psychotherapist. I'm also a licensed therapist. We talk about the isms. We talk about the phobias. Anything that marginalizes and oppresses. As a white woman, I ask the questions white people are too afraid to ask. Everything we are not and everything we are is because of fear. Through a mental health lens, Susie and I will have difficult conversations with celebrity guests, political activists, and everyone in between. Our mind will tell us whatever we want to believe, but the truth lives in the body, and that's where change occurs. Are you ready to change the narrative? Our next guest is a human hat rack. She wears so many hats. She's a super accomplished artist musician who has recorded 13 albums, a filmmaker, a mommy, a partner, Her work has been featured at some of the most prestigious venues in the world, including the Whitney Museum, LACMA, and the Art Institute of Chicago, just to name a few. She is a creator, a writer, and the producer of the acclaimed Netflix original documentary, Circus of Books, a poignant and fabulous film about a Jewish couple running a gay porn bookstore, offering a rare and delicious glimpse into an untold chapter of queer history. Oh, and the couple just happened to be her parents. She's here to share her story and her amazing life. Welcome, Rachel. Thank you. Wow, that was a really nice introduction, Susie. I appreciate that. Susie's the introduction queen. I don't try to touch it. I've never been called a human hat rack. Isn't that great? I think I'm going to use that. (laughs) It's good, right? So, Rachel, yeah, you know, Susie said before we got on the air, getting to know you has been incredible, but also it's kind of unbelievable to look at you and print all that you've done, but I'll get to that. First thing, I want to thank you for coming on, especially on such short notice. I know we've been trying to book you and we've been having some challenges because your schedule is out of control. And I know you have so many projects going on. So again, I just appreciate you for so much for making time for us. Thank you, thank you, thank you. Thank you. Now, aside from Susie's introduction, how would you introduce yourself to our audience? Oh, wow. What a good and scary question. How do I... (laughs) Oh, it's so weird. I think I often introduce myself based on the context of who and, you know, where I am. And when I think back on like the 13 albums, you know, it's so interesting. I have these things in my resume that I spent a big chunk of my 20s and 30s just making music. And I even now in my laptop, I have like tons of songs and they're just sort of part of my I don't know exactly how I would call it, but part of my identity on some level, like I just am sort of this prolific songwriter. But when I think on like the career side of things, you know, I never landed a big record deal and I never did things that when you say 13 albums, like for instance, making a film, that's what people know me now because I had sort of a commercial success. So I think of myself as being somebody that sort of manages to have this very indie non-commercial, esoteric aspect of myself that people could say, well, why do you still keep making music if you're not going to try to angle it into this particular mainstream success? And then I think, well, that's sort of what I've always done as an artist. Mm -hmm. I've just always, that's a painting I made behind me when I was 15. And I actually keep it here because it's sort of this reminder of the impulse of where it comes from to make art. It comes from a very non-commercial space, but now when I think on my resume and that kind of thing, when you're asking me, you know, again, that's what I was saying, depends on who I'm 
introducing myself to because, you know, if I am on a PR mission to talk about my last film, I really have to just introduce myself as a director and minimize all the other mm. sort of less commercial stuff. But in a space like this, which feels like a safe space, I can be more about who I really am, which is a human hat rack. <laughs> as you say. That's great. That's great. I would explode with all that creativity you pack in that one body. How do you manage it? I mean, you said you manage it, but how do you manage it? Thinking about creativity is so, it's so interesting. Like some days I do feel this sense that I've not been creative enough and I, and I just need to do something. You know, in some ways, I think now because of some of the successes that I've had, I'm getting to do less creative work, which is mm. ironic. Like when nobody knew anything about me and I had a little studio in a cave in a basement and was just plowing away, not making any money and, you know, barely getting by, I actually was very creative. Whereas now I'm, you know, the stakes are high. I have these big pitch meetings and I'm preparing materials. And some of it feels like, wow, this is like the 12th time I've redrafted this treatment and it's not that creative, but then you do something on a higher scale and then you, you know, get to create a, in the film world, a project, which really can be vast and include a lot more. Your project can be bigger and more high level, but that's what I was saying. My actual time is spent emailing and drafting proposals and things that don't feel creative. That makes sense, actually. It's like when you make the bigger play, you know, you take that step to be more commercial, as you say, then it does make sense what you're saying. Like it just, I could visualize it. It cuts your time in half to have that ex creative explosion go on yeah. inside of you. Yeah, that, that really makes sense. I mean, it's first world problems, let's say that. But oh my God, it, totally. Well, yeah. know, let, me, let me preface it with that. But it is also a bit of a sacrifice, like a little bit of a selling off part of yourself, right? No, and I look at, you know, in a weird way, I feel like I stumbled backwards into a successful commercial career. I thought Circus of Books would appeal to a really small group of gay men in particular. <laughs> I thought they would, all of the ones that knew the store would be like, okay, cool, I love it. And then maybe like, you know, a little bit of the wider LGBT community that would just appreciate it. I had no idea it was going to be mainstream ever. And if anyone had told me, millions of people in the real world outside of the comfortable LGBTQ bubble world that I reside in and within that bubble, the like artsy sphere of it, right. I wouldn't have believed it. And so I became sort of a documentary filmmaker with, I do love the creativity of making docs, but the, the reality of putting paint on a canvas or coming up with musical notes and like things that literally come out of the ether versus, you know, doing research and staging an interview and then crafting something in an edit. That's a creative, definitely is a creative aspect, but they're just so different. And I do feel like the part of me that sometimes does need to do the esoteric weird thing has definitely gotten a lot less attention, but I can't let sense. it atrophy because it definitely kills my soul if, if I don't do any creative work. Yeah. And that's what fed the other. Right. You know, it's like, what came first? Absolutely. I get these friendly reminders in the ether sometimes that I have to go back to doing creative projects. You know, it's interesting how I do have creative work in the more creative sphere in the narrative film world. Right. So I've written some scripts, a musical right. sci-fi project, other things that are very 
narrative, you know, that's where sort of my creative energy has okay. come. You know, you said before we got on that, a lot of that was in your 20s. I don't even know what I was doing in my 20s. I pretty much think I was just trying to survive. The idea that you were creating and so focused, I mean, it almost seems like you started creating out of the womb. <laughs> what did it look like that you started to be so focused at such a young age when most people are just really <laughs> tripping over their own feet and well, continue it? It's kind of interesting because I think on some level being an artist was like a security blanket because I was not very social. I was really scared of other kids. And it was really funny. The other day I was driving by my nursery school, actually. And I, I still see these little bars on this area on the streets on Fountain near Crescent Heights, where I, I went to a little Jewish nursery school. And I remember as a kid looking out of those bars, and I think I was only like three or four. Mm. And when I was in nursery school, it was so weird. I, I had a therapy session where I suddenly said these words. And then I realized how so many things come from that. I got kicked out of the sandbox. <laughs> and I remember it was my first day of nursery school. I really did. I walked up to these other kids and I said, can I play with you? And they said, no. And they kicked me out of the sandbox. And I remembered from that moment forward, I knew that I could sit at this little table and make art and nobody would bother me. And, and I remember the nursery school teacher saying to my mom, because my mom thought I had like a social problem. You know, she's just marching to the beat of her own drum. And many years later, my nursery school teacher, I don't even remember how, but she gave me some art supplies. And it was so powerful because I remember thinking, oh yeah, like art really saved me from all this social anxiety because I could just pour myself into this thing that was on this table and I didn't have to talk to the other kids. You know, in some ways that's where I always feel like my safest, happiest place. So I always relate to people that have that impulse. And I think it's like the great unifier among artists, no matter who you are in any classification in the entire world. You know, I've taught art in lots of different environments. And there's always like that one kid that I can see just like needs it. It's like they have to make art and it's their safety and it's the place they thrive. So I was that kid. You know, you make that so tangible. It just mm -hmm. makes so much sense. Thank you. I appreciate that. Well, you touched on it. So let's go there. You know, you mentioned mental health. Is that how you manage to spend so many plates in the air at the same time? How do you take care of your mental health is the real question. Well, I do have a therapist, which is... Yes, we love therapy. Well, and I believe, I mean, I really, really wish everyone could devote an hour to therapy a week or however much they need. I mean, I wish it was like... As part of our world as brushing your teeth, that everyone just knows that they need a therapist. And like, I don't believe that a person needs a therapist. I believe all people need therapists. You know, I, for me, it's totally something I came to acknowledge as just should be integrated into our culture in general. So I, I really appreciate you guys advocating for therapy and, and being therapists too. Like as healers, I believe therapy is a healing art. But I just think everyone should have access to it. It should be a more integrated thing in our entire culture. So, yeah, as far as my yeah, agree. You know, I, I have uh, people who will hit me up and they'll say, I wish I could afford therapy. And they'll give me the whole rundown of how they can't afford it. And I'll say to them, I totally agree with what you're saying, Rachel. Everybody should have access to therapy. It shouldn't be such a specialized thing that you don't have access to. But I also wanted to give and do give these people the other perspective, which is, Insurance companies don't 
really pay what they need to pay therapists to be on these insurance panels. And a lot of people have to hustle high level just to make a living. And so they're not doing us any favors. The message is that, you know, we're making so much money. And if you're an insurance panel therapist, you really have to hustle for that money. So it's not the therapist you want to go after. It's the insurance companies. Those are the ones who are are creating the system. Well, that's a part of the system. And with that in mind, to even open up the can of worms of like our medical industrial complex, why are pharmaceutical companies given carte blanche and every possible commercial on television is all about trying to take some meds as opposed to, well, first off, I mean, I believe medicine should be almost like the last resort if it's at all needed. And But it's offered as the first resort. For me, I would imagine, I mean, just in basic common sense, the numbers would be stacked in favor of insurance companies positioning therapists front and center. You know, I've spoken a lot with Buck about this, that in the trans community, the medical stuff is put before the therapeutic stuff. In my mind, it's a money game. Who stands to make the money? Well, these giant pharmaceutical companies who are going to sell all of these surgeries and medicine. And if I had to be cynical about it, I would just say it's purely you know, a money game. Yeah, I wish therapists had a stronger lobby to fight on the side of therapeutic medicine because I think that is, I just think it's better. Yeah. (laughs) I think it's more important. And I know too many people that have spent their lives on medication that has never quite worked. Well, medication without therapy, that just doesn't make sense to me. And I don't think that should be allowed. That's my professional opinion. So I hear what you're saying. Yeah, well, I just think it's, we have, our culture is really um, stacked in favor of going for those options as opposed to, I think, the therapeutic option first. Mm -hmm. So for me, that's, you know, that's it as for why I love therapy. I just feel like I get so much out of it. And it's not easy. I don't actually enjoy it sometimes, but I just know that if I don't do it, you know, in a way I leave myself vulnerable to all these other things that could be more difficult, make my life a lot harder. I mean, right. I have to balance all this stuff. Right. Totally makes sense. I'm going to shift gears. Aside from Jonah, which we know he is amazing and your greatest accomplishment, what would you say your next greatest accomplishment is thus far? Oh, that is such a good and hard question, JD, because I think about that and it's weird. I, On some level, I used to think in terms of like, artworks or films or projects, but I think I I feel a little more like the accomplishment is less about any one thing than about knowing that I'm doing something that could be helpful. So for instance, I've gotten messages from people having made circus of books that have really blown my mind, like that it helped them like come out to their parents or something that, yeah, really. and, And so on some level, you know, I used to think, oh, my greatest accomplishment would be like this cool song that I wrote or a, mm-hmm. you know, a painting or something artistic. But more so now, I think it's not just making the film that has like surface books in particular, but having gotten it out there, the due diligence to do the business side. That's like when I've learned about the art of the business in the film and entertainment industry and all these things, you have to work with these agents and business partners. and on some level, I feel as accomplished for having figured out a way to work with yeah. 
unruly schematic <laughs> people that I never knew about. And now I'm like, if it isn't for this group of people right here who devote themselves to finding the weirdos like me and making this thing marketable, I wouldn't have a film that anyone has ever seen. So I've wrapped my head around the like accomplishment of getting something into the mass media placement successfully as a big accomplishment for myself. And that I look at sort of as a group accomplishment. It's like all the different people that it took. And it is part of why I used to sort of look down my nose at like the industry in Hollywood and it just seemed very superficial to me. And now I think on some level, it's really profound. This moment in history when we have like creators that are, that are really, you know, some of the most, I would almost say like some of the most outsider people, like Lena Waithe, for instance, or Ava DuVernay or Ryan Murphy, they're like gay and queer and not white. Just being at the center and making these huge, enormous changes in our culture, that is as a result of them and the power of who they are and their charisma. But it's also all the people around them and all of the integration of this unwieldy system that I got myself now I see it. I'm like, oh, this person had to champion her. She had to go and run back in and have that meeting with that person who took a huge risk. So I see the system that is really evolving in a beautiful way right now for creators that are making profound work in the entertainment industry. And, And I feel really excited about that, about being a part of that. I think it's great for you to offer that perspective, you know, because it's easy to be cynical about it. So I think that's a really helpful perspective for people to hear. I so appreciate that because when I was an agent, what you're saying was my purpose. Mm. Finding the weirdos, celebrating them, and no one sees the behind the scenes. No one sees the group of people and the passion and making the nose and like, okay, it's a no. That means I have to go next door. And so I just personally really appreciate what you're saying. Well, you know, yeah. Oh, sorry. No, no, go ahead, Rich. No, I just wanted to add to that because it's part of what is the Wizard of Oz mystery now that I've opened that door and I'm like, oh, that's how, like, you know, how did Ava DuVernay get to be this incredible creator that owns her own company? And now that I understand it, like, it's all of the people, the Susies, who are taking chances on her or who are advocating for her. She was advocating for herself. There's all these people within this schematic that had to give these opportunities in places where it wasn't an easy or straightforward fit. And I've seen it with myself because I've talked to people like, well, I've never seen a gay porn movie ever do anything successful. And here it is. And it's a family story. How's that going to work? And then you have this advocate who's like, actually, no, I believe in it. I trust it. And that's why in some ways for me, it's the Susie's, the advocates who are on the inside doing the hardest work. Mm-hmm. imaginable to get some of these new creators their foot in the door. So I, that is a huge thing for me. And that's what I learned going in. It's, you know, the, the creator like me gets all the credit. We're like, yeah, I'm the director and you walk up mm-hmm. on stage, but it's really important to acknowledge all those people that, you know, put their jobs on the line, their neck out, made a call that they were nervous to make. That's how it has been working for me and I now that I see it I have gratitude for those people in my corner. Well I appreciate you putting that out there. You know, Circus of Books was how I got introduced to you. And then I of course had to know more about you. And I want to know what was it like? Just give us a, an idea of the day in the life of the child of Circus of Books. <laughs> like 
What does that look like? I can't imagine. Well, you know, it's so interesting, JD, because I would say that my childhood life was so suburban, but in the middle of the city. My mom was making every effort to shield us and make us into like an exaggerated, successful Jewish children. Like we didn't just have our bar mitzvahs. My mom made us read three times the amount of the Torah portion than like anyone else. And it was an agony. And I mean, a B wasn't good enough. You had to get an A. Luckily, my dad was there to temper it, but she was really positioning us to like be successful in sort of a very traditional track. Okay. And I, I never understood that later as maybe like overcompensating so that no one would ever look around the corner and see what we did. But there were occasional moments when I, there would be like a parent teacher day or something or career day where we'd, you know, say what our parents did. And my mom always had this like big, long explanation. And like, okay, first you're going to say that we're in real estate. And then when they ask about real estate, like mention that it's a, your parents also have a retail store. Don't say the name of it. You know, it's just like weird explanations. And then, and then one time I accidentally let it slip because we were never supposed to say the name of the store. Okay. Of course, I didn't know that that, how unusual you could say my parents on a store, but don't say the name of it. But we were really trained not to say the name of it. And then one day, I remember my teacher just really like got it out of me. She was like, come on, tell me the name of the store. And I, my mom told me I couldn't do it. I cannot tell you the name of the store. And then finally, when I let it slip, this one teacher was like, that's weird. She's like, I know all the bookstores in LA. I've never been there. And I was thinking to myself, well, that is weird. If it's a bookstore, why haven't you been in there? (laughs) That is such a great story, Wait, That is such a great story. Okay, go ahead. I'm sorry. Well, this is really funny. On Facebook, I reconnected with some of my elementary school teachers, and I really had these amazing, they were so cool. So I went to Wonderland Elementary School, which is a kind of well-known school within the Laurel Canyon. It's like known in LA as being the place where all like the doors and Joni Mitchell, you know, Jimmy, all the kind of like artsy rock and rollers in the sixties lived. A lot of kids of those cool hippie rock and roll type parents went to the school and my friends they had really cool parents, they were like artists, <clears throat> you know, okay. directors and, and Kareem Abdul-Jabbar's kids went there. Like, you know, like it was very LA hip, I guess. Right, right. But my parents were so boring. You know, I felt bad for myself that I could never have anything interesting to say, whereas my friend's parents were on set. So I've reconnected with some of those teachers from that school. One of them wrote to me and said she watched my movie and remembered distinctly when she asked me what my parents did. And she said, I remember that both you and your two brothers had the same answer about this question. In retrospect, she looked at it almost like a mafia style thing. (laughs) We were clearly told to say something. And she she logged it in her head as like a flag this thing for like the social worker later down the road. Like these kids were fed an answer, which is not correct. Because she said all three of us said the same thing. Like, well, we can't tell you. Oh, (laughs) man. Oh my God, Rachel, that is so funny. I just can't even. (laughs) Funny. It's porn. It's pretty funny. (laughs) (laughs) Man, 
you know, I, I don't even know what to say after that. That is so darn funny. I have to tell you, your mom, man, she worked overtime. She worked in creating this business and then had another business. Another really funny story. I remember when I finally started to get old enough to like understand it, I thought it was awesome and hilarious. And of course it made me super cool that all my like queer friends were like, your parents own the circus of books. We love that store. Like I was with the weirdo artsy kids, you know, in fact, it's funny, you know, Buck is quite a bit older than me. And I remember the scene that Buck was in with like all the super cool lesbians back in the 90s. Those yeah. were the people that my friends like worshipped from a distance. Okay. So and Buck was sort of part of the culture of Circus of Books. You know, in retrospect, I think like, oh my God, how cool is my life that I am connected to the guy who I thought was super cool back in the right. day, just as like a distant, not even knowing him. Anyways, on that side, when I got old enough, I would go to the store with my friends and it was fun. I remember one time walking into the back with a friend of mine and we had this sort of idea to do some art shows in the store. And he was like, yeah, let's talk to your mom about it. So we walked to the back and my mom was just on the phone placing an order for a bunch of videos and reading off the most crazy, <laughs> crazy Brazilian Come shots part two and yelling at them like we already ordered the come shots part one and mansplaining like all these different like craziest titles ever. She's looking at me and John, my friend John, was standing right behind me like his jaw was on the floor. But I was actually weirdly used to this, so you know he's just like Rachel. Oh my God, what like? And my mom is just like trying to give me that indication of like hold on just a minute, I'll be right with you. Meanwhile, the vile craziness that's coming out of her mouth was so disconnected from that so that was another oh. moment when i recognized how funny it was <laughs> it is hilarious these are the best stories i really i can't get enough of them when you think about your audience is it diverse or is it fairly similar the people who were with you before and have sort of traveled with you what's your take on it oh, i mean yeah i will say it leans clear but just beyond that i think the demographic split across almost everything is diverse, like male, female, race. It could be also a result of being in a metropolitan. Oh, right. That makes setting. sense. And I show my films in LA and New York. And that's where I, back in the day when you had a theatrical screening, when I was doing my theatrical screenings. Yeah, luckily, I feel really happy. I mean, I would say probably I don't have a, that many straight people mm. <laughs> in my midst. But I've come to realize that straight people are not the enemy. And yeah. I also include them in my audiences. And in fact, they're like the best ambassadors. And, and it's not even like an us versus them situation, which, you know, I think sometimes in the LGBT world, the film festival world, like this is our little space. Right. But then you're like, wait, but people brought their moms and their families and their kids and da, 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 da. And like, it's sort of a misnomer that we are LGBT in isolation from the rest of the world. That's so I, you know, I think on the LGBT spectrum of where my film Circus of Books showed, it was very, 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 very queer. But beyond, I'm glad to know that it has a wider audience. Right, right. No, I like the way you put that. That's really helpful. So what have you not done? I'm still over here wiping my tears from those stories. Um, <laughs> There's a lot more. To uh, I really can't get enough of them. Um, so childhood stories. <laughs> There's a new book. Yeah. Oh my goodness. So what have you not done that you still would like to do? You know, actually making a narrative feature film that is 
through narrative. Like the first feature film that I made was actually a musical art house film and it had no yeah. dialogue. We showed it in this crazy way and like in art galleries. You know, I really want to make a much bigger, significant bar with a feature film. And it's actually a musical film that I have written. So I have a script and I have it in development. You know, it's one of those things now that I'm year six of developing this one project. Like, okay, well, somebody was telling me recently that they're in their 20th year on a film. So I thought, okay, okay, six years is okay. Like, right. this is a slow burn in the film world with projects. But and there's tons of stuff I haven't done. I think when I look at what I really want to do, though, it's becoming more focused on film projects. I really do love the medium. I, I absolutely love storytelling in this way. And I do actually really like collaborating. Mm -hmm. That's the thing I realized when I was an artist. Just you do so many things yourself and you do it sort of badly yourself. I realized like I wasn't the world's greatest editor, but I edited my film because I didn't have any money to hire an editor. So I'm just going to do it. And now I'm like, my favorite thing is to work with someone who's a great editor, you know, and I can do this job well, but I have to isolate myself into this role here. And, you know, that's, again, I think I just really do love the collaboration on all sides. Right. In, it's like the ultimate challenge to make a film. And in that capacity, it's also even the business side challenge is interesting. Like all of it is challenging. <laughs> it's really, really hard. And, and there's a break in the the flood when you've done all this work it's like so exciting i mean you have to love it to do what you're doing you, you absolutely have to love it yeah. i think you have to have all the perspectives that you have it's got to be really helpful listen where can people find you who don't know where you are and what's next what's specifically next and where can people find you it's two questions in one well i'm on let's see instagram my instagram handle is future clown which is a performance art character I use it in order to take down people in positions of authority, such as the president, meaning Donald Trump previously. Mm -hmm. He did this maniacal, mm -hmm. unbelievable inaugural address. And I didn't even know that it was going to be so maniacal, but I put on this future clown costume and lip synced it. And that was something that I would do in moments of political activism, but more artwork. So my company is called Future Clown Productions. And so it came from that the poking at authority through a clown character. So futureclown.com takes you to my website and you can see pretty much everything I have there. And then I really don't use Twitter or Facebook a whole lot, but you know, I am there, but my name is Rachel Mason. There's actually over a million Rachel Masons in the world. <laughs> oh, wow. The futureclown.com is probably the best thing. Yeah, it's easier to find me there. And then as far as what's happening next for me, you know, I have some really amazing doc projects that one I just got brought in to direct, which is totally, no one's heard about it. So I don't know if I can announce it quite yet, but it's going to be a doc series that appears on HBO Max. And it's actually about a really shocking and crazy twisted story that played out on social media with a particular influencer. Once I can say more about that, You'll hear more, but there's that. You'll come back, Rachel? Yeah, yeah. Happy to come back and talk All about right. that. That one has a lot of psychological components. Mm -hmm. And then there's another project that's like my passion project documentary, and it's a cold case. It's a 30-year cold case, and it's such a tragedy that it has never been solved. A young man who died in 1990, he was a gay porn actor, and he was found dismembered 
his head and his feet were all that were found of him. And to this day, his entire case remains a mystery. And the story I've been following tracks not just the mystery of his murder and who might have done it, but how come it wasn't solved? And, you know, learning this, you know, it's interesting for me growing up in that time, 1990, mm-hmm. I was like a kid in the heyday of West Hollywood here in LA. And I go back to all the different places in this project and I'm reading, you know, the police files and I'm like, wow, I was just right in the midst of all of these wow. moments. But gay men were so under siege in 1990. They were just dying from AIDS, first off. But secondly, when they would talk to the police, they really were nervous about all the reasons a gay man might be nervous talking to the police. You know, having come off of previous decade where it was still illegal to be gay and cops would just flat out arrest you. So now they're trying to communicate with the police. And I've been speaking to different people who might have had information, but didn't communicate in the right way, in a forthcoming way. So you can see why a crime wouldn't get solved, which is one of my obsessions is like going back in history in the specific area of gay history, where we can understand why certain things existed in the way they did Mm -hmm. only by understanding the, the cultural space that was the gay community. Wow. Well, I have to say they both sound incredibly interesting. Can't wait to hear more about them. Thanks for agreeing to come back on. Thank you so much again for coming on to talk to us. Look, we usually ask, how are you changing the narrative? But I think it's pretty obvious you're changing it. (laughs) You're changing it. Appreciate you, Rachel. Love you. And thank you so much for coming on. Really, really, really thoroughly enjoyed this. Ah, Well, I love you guys too. And it's nice to actually reconnect again. Yeah, for sure. Talk to you soon. Bye. Bye. And JD and I want to thank our fabulous producers at I Am Music Group. And for all of you out there who want to do your own podcast, go to IamMusicGroup.com and the team will hit you back. And also leave us a review. Let us know what you think. Thank you for listening to Change the Narrative with J.D. Fuller.